Romans 7, 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Well, when a pastor is working on a sermon, he's always pleased and excited when it lays out before him in three succinct little points that he can make. Points that you can all remember, and then three points that he can find wonderful little illustrations, and that'll carry the communication process. There is a reason why individuals want to, at times, take up and preach on the book of Romans. There's wonderful truths in the book of Romans, but then again, if they start studying it and preparing for it, there are reasons why they might think they don't want to preach on the book of Romans. This passage here is one of those passages that might make you think, maybe I'll wait a few more years before I approach this text. I can tell you, though, that a few more years doesn't give you any added uh, wisdom or insight, really, in totally understanding this passage. And this is probably one of the most controversial passages in all the Bible. There's a wider range of opinion on this, and it's not something that's just come lately. It's a controversy of understanding that goes all the way back to the early church, and you can tread that there were different views and ideas of what this passage meant. And so we're diving into something that has been, to some extent, debated over and reflected upon and tried to be understood through the ages I think actually it suffered from too much attention in a sense, because this is one of the passages that is actually one of the more famous passages. If you go to a seminary and you study, this is one of the passages you have to go and look at together. You all debate, and there are individuals and in different schools of thought that line up, and I think they've almost given too much thought to it. I think oftentimes the believer who's reading this passage the first time doesn't have as hard a time understanding as a theologian who's stretching over every point of it and trying to understand it. It makes some extent for the person who's looking at this. But we're going to look at it this morning, and we're going to try to understand it. And the first thing we need to know is kind of where we're at as we approach this text. And we remember that in our study so far, what Paul has written, that he's explained something of the impact of the law of God on the individual. And he's expressed to us that the law has no power to save an individual. Although men go to the law to somehow seek a pathway for salvation in it. The law has no power to then sanctify an individual. That's kind of where Paul has turned in Romans chapter 6. It doesn't have the power to sanctify the individual either. You have to go to another place in order to find a life of holiness. And so 
what Paul has told us is what the unredeemed person, the unsaved or the individual has not been born again does when he approaches the moral laws of God and what is his instinctual interaction with the law of God. And what he says is that the unredeemed person approaches the law of God as a point at which he tries to transact with God. He tries to, before the law of God, purchase acceptance, gain some merit, do something that God has to then reciprocate by giving him something. I'll prove that I'm a good person. I'll prove that I can earn and work my way to salvation. Whatever the deficit is in my life, the law will show me, the moral law will show me the place where I can make up the deficit and I can actually gain currency with God. So it's a place where they transact with God, yet it doesn't work. That's what Paul says. It doesn't work. He says that the law only proves that men are guilty, but it proves that men are not righteous. He actually says in Romans 3.10 that there is none righteous, no, not one. He says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're not able to come to the law in that way. Now listen, because men pursue the law in that way, at the same time frustrated in that, they oftentimes throw in the towel. Oftentimes they don't even try. And then they just rebel against God and the law and they go the other direction. And so Paul also says in Romans 3 verse 12 that all have gone out of the way. All of them have turned from the way of God's law and God's commands. And that's what sin is. Sin is called trespassing and it's called missing the mark. That's what it means. They've turned away from those things and they've rebelled. So following the law in order to gain merit from God or rebelling against the law because they're frustrated by it. Ultimately, the unsaved or unredeemed person is motivated in their actions. Whether they follow it or whether they rebel against it, they're motivated in their actions to somehow pay God his due or then to deny God his due in frustration. But either way, what they're doing in their motivation is they're actually trying to distance themselves from God. Even when I'm trying to pay God his due, I'm trying to put the currency in my own pocket. I'm trying to say, I've done things and God owes me things and this makes me less dependent upon him. I actually can indebt God to me in some way. Look how good I've been, God. You owe me this or you owe me that. And then that's creating distance. That's actually trying to empower yourself in the face of the all-powerful God. At the same time, in frustration, and because they feel the press of the law upon their conscience, and they realize that the law actually kind of rubs against their instinct to do their own thing, they then express themselves in rebellion. And that is simply doing the same thing. They're just in a different direction. They're still seeking their independence from God. They're motivated to distance themselves from God. Before the law of God, the unregenerate person has this mix stirred within them of both self-righteousness and sin. And that's what's coming to play. And that's the state that the law produces in the individual before they've been born again of the Spirit of Christ, before they've been saved. As a result, the law then brings them under condemnation. The law gives the sentence over them that they're guilty reveals this to them. Paul has been making this argument all along. The law shows you that you're a rebel against God. The law shows that you just want to pursue your own self-righteousness to indebt God and it won't work because you fail at it. The law shows that your instinct though, in spite of all that, is to do your own thing and to rebel and turn from Him and to walk out of the way. And here's the fact, none of you are righteous. You've all sinned and you cannot justify yourself by the law. Instead, the law brings judgment upon your life. He's mounting up all these negative influences of the law, and their conclusion is that, Paul, you're saying that the law is a bad thing, that the law is sin. And Paul's answer to that, Paul says to him, no, not at all. 
And this is what we considered last week. Paul says the law is holy and the law is just and the law is good. It's holy and just and good because the law of God reveals the nature and attributes of a holy and just and good God. It's built upon his own being, his own nature. Everything that God commands you is a reflection of who he is. He says you'll have no other gods before you because he's the supreme God and you're supposed to have him himself. He says make no graven images to worship because God is a spirit and he wants you to worship in fearful awe before him in spirit and truth. He says you're not to take God's name in vain because God's name is holy and his name is not used to be kind of currency that you put around to gain your own favor and your own influence. It's a name that you come and bow before and yield to and he tells you to honor your father and mother because your father and mother are the first expressions of the providential care of God in your life. You honor to them because of that. Just tell us the truth because God is truth. And you're not to commit murder because God is the God of life. And you're not to covet because God is the sovereign one who dispenses to all as he sees fit. He's given to you and given you a stewardship in your life. And you're not to covet what other people have just to be faithful with the stewardship God has given you. And on and on. These commands reflect who God is. And so the law is good because it reflects a holy and just and good God. But it's also good. It's holy and just and good because it reveals what's not just and what's not holy and what's not good. And that is, it reveals who we are. It shows who we are. As a result of all that, what Paul is teaching is that you don't want to go through life just figure out how to best live your relationship to the law, how to best identify what the laws and rules are for your life that you can fulfill because that will lead you into that same kind of mindset in which you're gaining ground with God because you're a good person. And that will also frustrate you. And then in your frustration, you'll turn away from it. You don't want a relationship that starts with the law. You want a relationship that starts with the lawgiver. You want to have a relationship with him. And believer, this is what you have. You've been united to Christ. You've been bound to him. You're married to the lawgiver. And now, as you approach the law, it's just a place in which you celebrate the depth of the benefit and value and joy of being related to the one who sustains and supports and throughout all the expressions of what is good and true and right. Because it's flowing out of himself and you're bound to him, you have a relationship with him. So that's kind of where Paul ends. Paul is actually basically saying, look here. The problem here is not with the law. You think the law is bad because it's revealing all these bad things, but the problem is not with the law. The problem is in yourself. And there is a limitation in the law. There is something the law can't do. The law can't overcome your own weakness. The law can't overcome your own sin and your own instincts and sin. It can't change what you are of the substance you're made of. It can reveal to you what you are and what you're made of, but it, it can't change it. So the law is good. The law is right. But the law is powerless to change you. It can't change you where you are profoundly handicapped and limited. Listen, you can come to Christ for salvation because you realize you can't save yourself in the law. But the problem is then you go back to those old patterns and you try to make yourself right before God after that by just following the law. And the problem is the law will continue to expose your own failure, your own weakness, your own inabilities. Paul's going to continue to advance that argument. So here's the next thing. So this is where we're at now. We're at verse 14. We've come to the end of verse 13, and now we're at verse 14. And Paul is going to continue to make this point that the law actually is good in this sense, that it reveals to and it just shows you our own weakness, 
but also that the law has a limitation. It can't change that weakness. It can't make you. It can't change the substance of what you're made in. So Paul says this, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am in verse 14 of Romans chapter seven, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, what's Paul saying? Again, he's saying that the problem is not with the law. The law is spiritual. Just prior to this, remember he said the law is holy and just and good. It's spiritual. It's in the right place. The weakness of the law is that it has no power to change what we are in the flesh. The law is spiritual, but I am, he says, carnal, sold under sin. And the word carnal there is the Greek word sarks. We've talked about this before. The word carnal just means of the flesh. Paul says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And then Paul goes on to demonstrate the condition of that flesh, how it expresses itself. He doesn't do what he wants to do. He does the very thing that he doesn't want to do. And this very process reveals that he knows instinctively, or he knows in his heart that the law is good, even if he doesn't always obey it. And by the way, that's the fact with you. The fact is that that you don't obey the law, and you know you should. Aren't there things in your life that you know you should have done, and things that you don't do that you, you know you should do, and it doesn't work out all the time, and, but you know what you should have done, and you know what you shouldn't have done? That reveals that instinctively, whether you did it or not, usually oftentimes we fail in these things, that you know it was good and it was right. It's also revealing that it's not with the should have and the should not have that the problem is. It's not with the rule or the standard. The weakness is in yourself. You can't keep it. It's not with the law itself. And that's exactly what Paul's making here. That's the whole point now of what Paul is going to say in the rest of this chapter. He's just going to reveal that the failure is not with the law of God, but that the law of God demonstrates the failures in ourselves that's within us, that it's within our fleshly makeup. It is with the sin that hosts itself in our flesh. And the weakness of the law is simply this. You can't change what is in your flesh. It can't change you in that way. You can't do it. And so if you go to law to change what's in your flesh, now I'll prove myself that you're going to fail. And so this is his whole point. Now, Let's transition for a moment because there's another thing we have to look at in this passage. Paul is speaking I, I, I here in this passage. He uses I and me a lot in this passage. And the question that's being asked by different individuals is Paul really speaking of himself. This can't be the Apostle Paul who's actually giving you a record of his own life and his own experience. And so some say that Paul is only speaking here allegorically. He's basically speaking to another individual across the table and he's using I and me in order to you know, not be too direct with him. But that doesn't seem to be the case at all. That doesn't seem to make sense. As a reading of the text, actually Paul says, let me show you something in verse 14. In verse 14, Paul says, for we know the law is spiritual. There when he says we, he's identified himself in a group of individuals and he's expressed himself. And then he says, but I am. And now he draws it back upon himself. And by saying that, we know that now Paul is not using the I to speak of the we. <laughs> He's already acknowledged the we around there. Now he says, now I am. And so Paul is talking about himself. So that's 
something we put aside. But that's one of the debate that goes to place. So, but the next question is, who is this I that Paul is speaking of? At what point in time is Paul speaking of his life? Is Paul reflecting on himself prior to his conversion of faith in Jesus Christ? In other words, is Paul using himself to describe the state of the unregenerate person? And he's basically losing himself as the template. Here's what the unregenerate person is like. They're carnal and sold under sin. Is that what Paul's talking about? And there are a number of individuals, and this was the prominent view in the early church, that Paul was basically describing through his own life what he was in his state before he was born again and before he had believed in Jesus Christ and before he had been changed and he had been made a new creature. And that's who he's referring to. He's referring to the unsaved Paul that once existed, and he's just speaking to it to make a point in the present. That's the idea here, but there's the other question. The other idea is that Paul is actually reflecting upon himself in the present hour, in his present position, that Paul is describing the current condition of every born-again person, including himself, and he's giving himself as, again, the template of the experience of the Christian life. In which case, if you read this passage, it sounds pretty bleak. You know, it sounds pretty pathetic and pretty sad. And a lot of individuals don't want to go there either because it doesn't sound very victorious. I'll give you a little clue here, by the way. We're not going to get this far, but you can't understand where Paul is going in this conversation until you read Romans chapter 8. The victory is in Romans chapter 8, but we have to stay in Romans chapter 7 for now. So what are the clues that Paul was possibly just describing the past state of an unregenerate, unsaved person? Remember in Romans chapter 6.22, Paul declares that the Christian has been set free from slavery to sin, And the Christian has, as a result of faith in Jesus Christ, become a slave by the power of God's grace, bound by grace to become a slave of God. He's been freed from being a slave to sin that produced the fruit of unrighteousness in order to become a slave of God that produces within him this ongoing fruit of obedience. And that's Paul's declaration of what a born-again person is. And yet at the same passage, now that we've just read, Paul says, I am sold under sin. And the word sold under sin is the terminology of a slave. And he's saying, I'm a slave all over again to sin. That doesn't make sense. That sounds like Paul must be talking about what his life was in light of what he just said in Romans 6. He must be talking about his life before he was born again and before he saved. The next, Paul says this. Paul speaks throughout the whole text of his complete inability to do the right thing. He's seems to be powerless before the law, and he just keeps failing over and over again. And again, this doesn't seem to be the property or promise that's given to the believer of victory and triumph that's given to us throughout the Scriptures. So Paul must be talking to the ongoing, steady drumbeat of moral failure that comes to the individuals who've never been born again. And then third, Paul doesn't sound in this passage like an individual who has found peace and freedom and victory in Jesus Christ, which is... What the Christian is brought to. When I receive him, I receive peace. And when I receive him, it's with the Son that I'm set free and I have life and I rejoice in it. And what Paul's writing here doesn't sound like the triumph of a victory of a born again man. In fact, he sounds really miserable. He says, I know that is in me, in my flesh, there's nothing good that dwells. How to perform what is good? I don't find it. I can't find it. In verse 18 and in verse 24, oh, wretched man that I am will deliver me from this body of death. You take all that under consideration. I conclude that this must be Paul imaginatively voicing the condition of himself before he was saved, before he had been redeemed and born again with the Spirit of God. So let's look back at the text now and say, what's the evidence that Paul is actually speaking 
as a redeemed or regenerate person? What's the evidence that Paul is speaking as a redeemed or regenerate man, a person who's put their faith in Jesus Christ and has been saved and washed of their sins and has experienced the transforming power of God in their life? I would say this first. Paul perceives the spiritual goodness of God's law. He sees that it's good. He sees that it is holy, and he sees that it is just, and he sees that it's good, and there's no question in his mind. But, but it's a little beyond that. You might say, well, that, that might be possible even in a Pharisee. No, the second thing is he wants to fulfill that law. He has a desire to fulfill that law, do what's right. Well, that, that might also be the Pharisee as well, but his desire to fulfill the law there's a motivating principle in it that's more than just trying to prove that he's a good person. There's a greater motivating principle here than that he wants to measure up to expectations or that he wants to show others what a good man he is. And it's clear in this that his motivation is not that he's trying to gain currency with God. He's not trying to indebt God to him because he's such a good person. No, his motivation is not a superficial desire and it's not a twisted and deformed desire. It's a pure desire. Paul says in verse 22, I Delight in the law of God according to the inward man. At the very core of what I am, I long for at the core of my being, I take pleasure in the law of God. Now that sounds like a person who's been brought into relationship through a new being and becoming a new creature, brought into relationship with the lawgiver and exalts and delights and celebrates the deep core of his being and the laws of the lawgiver because it binds him in his relationship with him and expresses his relationship with him. When Paul speaks of delighting in his inner man, he's reflecting again on another passage. He'll also say this. He says, with my mind, he says, I serve the law of God. Now, when Paul speaks of the mind, when we think of this mind, we just think about what we're thinking about. We're just thinking about our thought life. But when you read in the New Testament the expression of the mind, it's really speaking to that spiritual entity that you are, again, as a spiritual being. And Paul is saying, as a new spiritual man, I pursue and seek to fulfill and obey the law of God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2.16, it refers to the condition of the born-again individual. And there it says that we have the mind of Christ. Our spirit has changed so that the whole interaction of our process of being is driven by Christ in us. Christ's own mind and Christ's own heart. So Paul says, I pursue the law of God. I see that it's good. I want to fulfill it, but I, I don't have a twisted desire to earn something from God. And I don't have some superficial desire to impress individuals. I have a deep abiding desire for my inward man because I delight in the law of God. And with my mind, I serve that law, this transformed mind. Fourth, here's another thing. Only a born-again individual knows and sees the true nature of sin as it appears in his or her life. The nature of a person who's not been saved or born again is primarily to approach God's law and approach life and everything around them in a self-justifying way, in a self-righteous way or a self-excusing way. I'm a good person, but that was this and that was that and there was too much and they did this to me and that's the nature. That's what happens in the backseat of your car all the time when your kids are arguing with one another. There's the self-justifying, the self-righteous, and the self-excusing nature. It goes on and on. It's been going on. That's the nature of the unsaved person. But the saved individual sees himself or herself that apart from the work of God in them, they are unspiritual. That there is nothing good in and of themselves alone. 
And this self-analysis that I am nothing and sinful and putrid and I have nothing to offer in myself is an analysis that comes to us when the Spirit of God sheds light on our own potential and what we're made of apart from what God does in us and God does to redeem us. And when the Spirit of God comes and we become a new creature, all of a sudden the light of God's truth is shining. But within us, it begins to show us all of the vagaries and all the weakness and all the failures that are just in our flesh. So that's what's happening here. It's the born-again individual who sees the true nature of sin as it appears in his or her own life. And where in the past we made excuses of it or we said, well, I can be good and I can overcome it. We see it for what it is. It's dark and it's ugly and it drives us away from those things that are good and pure and right. And it's the very thing that Christ had to die for and suffer for to redeem us from. And there's no answer for it except to be forgiven and cleansed by him. There's another thing here. There's a fifth thing. The born again man or woman Finally, ultimately, now we might get confused on this point, but we have to go to the core of what our great desire is. The born-again man or woman finally wants nothing of a self-salvation. We don't want our hands in our salvation. We want to say, through Jesus Christ alone and faith in Him alone, by grace alone we're saved. We don't claim, if someone asked us, what gives you confidence at going to heaven? We don't even say, well, you know, I believe these things and I receive these things. That's not our message. It's God mercifully came and shed his blood for my sins and turned my heart to cling to him. And all my hope and trust is in him and his work and his salvation. He gets all the glory. Not unto us be glory, honor, and praises, but unto you be glory and honor and praises forever and ever because you have redeemed. It's God's work. And we want that. We want to be able in God's presence to say, Jesus led me all the way. All the way it was him. It was his work all along. We don't want to take any credit for our salvation. Here I want to tell you something. Ultimately, when you've been redeemed and saved, you don't want to take any credit for your sanctification either. It's all of God. All the saving work is of him. That's the great long desire of a person who's been made a new creation in Jesus Christ. They look at the powers resident in their own physical energies and they want nothing of themselves to claim any part of their salvation or their sanctification. Instead, they look at that, even if it might perform well, even if it might exercise in such a way that people would say, say oh boy, that looks really good. No, the born again says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from that body of death. I want a salvation that comes from outside of me entirely. I don't want any righteousness that I say was my righteousness. I want the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ that saves me from beginning to end. So this is what Paul is expressing. He's recognizing the vestiges of sin in his own body. He's recognizing the weakness that he still has within himself and he sees it as he never saw it before. Even before he was saved, he never saw the rotten planking of his own moral inabilities. He's recognizing that there's nothing in himself and he doesn't want anything in himself. He wants only that which Christ can produce. And he's coming to the full implications of this idea and this understanding. Out of that, he's crying out and he's saying these things. So I think that we have to see that we're required to see that Paul here is speaking to the Christian. And as a Christian, he's relating to a present reality in the Christian life. He's making an honest assessment of himself 
when standing in his own strength and by his own powers and with his own individual resources before the law of God. Even as a regenerate man in himself, by his own strength and ability, he's in the same state that he was before, in a sense, in terms of his powers to do what is right and what is good. And he's making an assessment as a regenerate man before the law of God in this way. And he's describing an attitude as a regenerate man, at least how he regards himself as he sees himself in one limited way. So in other words, now he's addressing who he is, but it's not all of who he is, which we'll see as we want to read in this text. What we need to see here now, Paul is speaking about himself. Paul is speaking about a present condition that's in the life of the believer, in himself and in any believer. We can identify in ourselves. But Paul, as he's looking at himself in this present moment, he's actually identifying something himself in a limited way. He's identifying what's in his flesh. He's identifying what's in his body. He's identifying what's in his members. All statements of his fleshy makeup, just the stuff that makes you what you are, the stuff of the material substance that you're made of that's animated and alive. We've said this before. We are not bodies with spirits. We're spirits with bodies. And he's looking at his body. And he's given an expression of the body. He says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. I am of the flesh sold under sin. A number of weeks ago, we spent a considerable amount of time preparing ourselves for the very, very point that I'm trying to make here. The Christian is a person who has been born again. They have been made a whole new spiritual man. The corrupt and sinful person or spirit that they once were when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, dies with Christ. And they're dead as that old man and that old nature, and it's passed away. That corrupt man that they were was thoroughly intertwined with their sinful bodies so that you couldn't take and study and understand where your spirit, your corrupt spirit ended and where your corrupt body began. It was all intermingled together. But when you give your faith and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says old things have passed away and everything has become new and you're a new creature. You're new, you're a new man with a bold, new, wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ. And in a sense, you're segregated out from the body that you're living in. The old man has died and a new man is set up and is set up within your bodies. A new man that has been fashioned and created in the likeness of Jesus Christ and is bound in union to Jesus Christ. Paul says again, we have a mind, a new mind that serves the law of God. He's speaking, this is the truth of what's changed in the inward man. We're a new man inwardly, deep at the core of our being. We've changed completely. The believer has changed completely. You have to believe that. But here's the issue. Our bodies haven't changed. Christ has redeemed the spiritual man and woman. Christ has created a new man and woman by faith in Jesus Christ. That's a transforming work of the gospel. But they're living in unredeemed bodies. We're living in unredeemed bodies. We are living in unspiritual and corrupt bodies. We have a spirit that now is ready to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. My spirit right now is ready for immediate communion. I can now, in my spirit, clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ, make my way right into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. My body, not so much. My body has to be planted in the ground corruptible, and God is going to raise it incorruptible. God is going to call us forth, and in that moment, our bodies are going to be transformed into something that we can't entirely recognize. It'll be like the seed to the tree. 
The redemption that's coming for our body. So the Bible says we eagerly, we, the believer, eagerly waits the day of the redemption of our bodies. I'm not waiting for the redemption of my spirit. I'm a new man in Christ. I'm waiting for the redemption of my body. And Paul is looking at his body. And he's looking at the impulses of sin that still rages in his body. And he's disappointed. And this is when he says, I here throughout this passage in me. He is discovering, he is basically probing and discovering that although he's been born again, he's probing and discovering that his body hasn't. That his body is still weak. In fact, I would suggest this to you. And this is where we'll have to leave. I would suggest that Paul is speaking of the born-again believer who discovers the ongoing weakness of their flesh when they attempt through the law to achieve a holy life. He's saying he's discovering the weakness of his flesh. This is what happens to a believer. We receive Christ, we're wonderfully saved, we're forgiven. This new impulse to obey God and follow Him and live for Him comes in us as never before. We have new designs and appetites and desires. We want to magnify Him and our obedience to Him and whatever He tells us we're going to do. And we want to go out to the world and show Him the change that's taken place in our life. And we take our bodies and say, let's do it. Thanks God for saving me. We can take it from here. You know, Paul says, I was a Pharisee of a Pharisee. Paul was a person who had so meticulously knew, followed the law that he says earlier in this passage, that he hadn't even known that he was a sinner, except that he read that you shouldn't covet. And he realized, oh, I have a little problem with coveting. Wait, now I have a, oh, no, I have a, a little bigger problem with coveting. Actually, I have a big problem with coveting. And, but now that he's gotten taken care of and he's been forgiven, Paul probably, if he's like any one of us when we first come to Christ, thinks, all right now, I'm going to go back and I'm going to prove myself. I've changed. And I've been given a clean slate. And God, I'm going to write on that slate all the right things. And I'm going to do all the right things now. And Paul goes out in that way. He strides out in that he actually instinctively goes back to the habituated practice that men had before the regenerate, the practice of proving themselves in the law, and he fails. And he fails miserably, miserably. And that's what will happen to us as well. If you just try to show, I'm a good Christian, by following me, you're going to fail. And actually the secret to understand this passage is, you go on to Romans chapter 8. One of the things you'll find out is all through Romans chapter 7, you know what it says? The word that's the most prominent word? Law, 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 law. You know what the prominent word is in Romans chapter 8? The Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. Paul has to learn, I can't live this life by the law. I have to live this life in the power and the freedom of the Spirit. I can't lean into myself to accomplish these things. It's God that works in me both the will and to do his prayer. I have to lean in hard every day in the spirit of Christ that's in me. He alone can save me from the penalty of my sins and he alone can save me from the power of my sins. I have nothing to prove. I'll prove him. I have nothing to prove of myself. I'll prove him sufficient and all that I need. And this is where Paul is taking us. And this is where he's directing us. Now he's left us and I want to get back to this next week. He's left us before this state of our flesh. And I think he's giving us an expression of the experience of the born-again man as they're confronting their own flesh and the weakness of the flesh before the law of God. And they see that the law is good, but it can't change. And it didn't change any part of their flesh. It just reveals that they're just as weak as they ever were. Now, what should that do for us? Well, one... 
Don't trust in your flesh. Don't lean on your flesh. Lean on him. Two, don't be too harsh in judging those who are discovering the putridness of their flesh in their Christian walk. Those who are striding out to show themselves and they're failing miserably. They're not revealing anything other than what you're made of yourself and what the substance of your flesh remains. And it will remain that way until the Lord Jesus returns. Oh, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. And you can walk in the Spirit. But if you choose not to, you're made of the same substance. So be merciful. Be gracious. Be kind. Be patient. And lead them and yourself. Let that remind you. Always to lead them and yourself to... The gospel, which is Christ for me. Christ for me from beginning to end. Christ for me not only for the penalty of my sins, but Christ for me for the power of my sin. Jesus, you're going to have to help me here. Every single day you're going to have to help me. Because the tendency in my life is to go back to relying upon my flesh. The arm of flesh will fail you. It will fail you. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. And so what was required for us was a Savior who would come, come in the form of sinful flesh, to live a sinless life on our behalf. A Savior that would go into death for us, but in death would explode it and destroy it by His life. Dear Jesus, when we partake of You, when we even celebrate the communion meal, when we drink the cup that represents Your blood shed for us, when we Eat the bread, it it represents your body given to us. We are claiming that we are immersing and that we are living by your life and not our own. We are choosing no rest or no trust in anything of ourselves. Our rest, our trust is in you, dear Jesus, in your provision. It is easy before it, before the table, before us, to assay to consider and to run over what it is that we are in ourselves. Which one of us would not honestly be able to say, I see that that which is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing, no wretched man that I am. But here's the answer. Here's the answer. Your life given to us. Your life to complete in us what we can't do ourselves. You given to live in us your glory and your majesty. So, dear God, it's not the law where we find our relationship, it's with you that we find our life. Bound to you, living in you. And we ask you, God, that we might profess that as we partake of this meal. In Jesus' name, amen.